And if I was to give anyone guidance listening is on the whole, go more specific than you think, because I think the general population defer towards the side of not specific enough. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show's expert analysis episode on training as we look back at season two with an expert coach to examine where pros like Tommy Caldwell, Mary Eden, Jonathan Segrist, Melina Costanza and more struggle in their training, what they learned, what common threads we can identify and how that info can help you and me to level up our climbing. That's what this expert analysis episode is all about. The past four months have all been building to this point. I am so, so psyched. And here to help us decode the pro's secrets is the one and only Tom Randall. You all know Tom as an elite climber, elite coach, co-founder of Lattice Training, and basically one of the most psyched guys on the planet when it comes to geeking out over data and all things climber training. He's also just one of the nicest guys around, and I am beyond grateful that he has taken the time to really pour over our Season 2 interviews to bring us valuable insights that we can take into our own training and climbing. Y'all are in for a big treat today. So it's been a few weeks since we wrapped up the season with Peter Croft. Loved that episode, by the way. And I have been putting together these expert analysis episodes and also recovering a bit from the pretty rigorous schedule of cranking out new eps each week. So I managed to sneak away a little bit last week for a couple of days for some climbing in Red Rocks with a few former guests of the show, which was so rad. They were incredibly generous to invite me out. And while they worked on their projects in the 514 and 515 ranges, I took whip after whip on an 11B and a 12A. It was humbling to say the least, but it was also really comfortable taking all of those falls because I was wearing my Harundos harness by show sponsor Petzl. Its fuse frame technology means that it's light and it's fast, so unfortunately I couldn't use that as an excuse as I flailed all day at Potosi. But good thing, it is just as comfy as it is light, so that I could dog in comfort. I am so psyched that Petzl's supporting the struggle as its official gear sponsor. If you are looking to level up your harness game, Petzl has a variety of options for different climbing styles and objectives. Visit your local gear shop or pop over to Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. Now, a couple of the guys that I was climbing with in Vegas, Drew Mack and Jonathan Segrist, are Fizzy Vantage athletes, so we were all fueled on the best nutrition in the biz that day. A new product that we're all super psyched about is Fizzy Vantage Greens. Oh my gosh, you guys, it is so, so good. I start every day with this greens powder, which has 15 organic greens in it, prebiotics, probiotics, fiber, and protein. It supports immune system, digestive health, and boosts energy and focus. And perhaps most exciting is it doesn't taste like grass clippings. It's delicious and it's affordable. It is really the best way to start the day. I love it. I think you guys will too. Check it out along with their other products produced for climbers by climbers. Hit that link in your show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full price nutrition order at fizzyvantage.com. And lastly, a shout out to the patrons of The Struggle. Thank you all so much for your support. It has really blown my mind and exploded my heart to see so many of you joining in support of the work that I'm doing here or 
Maybe y'all have just come aboard to get access to our pro clinics with the likes of Ravioli Biceps, Drew Mack, Fabia Dubik, Jordan Cannon, and many more. Either way, I am incredibly grateful. If you aren't a patron, pop on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show and check out the tiers. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you. I love you. All right, let's get ready to do some front levers with our brain muscles as we dig into training with Tom Randall. Tom, I'm psyched, man. Welcome to the struggle. So you had me on Lattice. Now I get to have you. Um, the microphones have turned. How are you? I was about to say the microphones have turned. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen today? That's right. You're in my utility closet now here at the Struggle Climbing Show. I'm really psyched. Obviously, you know, you're, you're a hell of an elite climber in your own right, but we're here to talk about training and get really nerdy, which I think is also very comfortable waters for you. And before we dive in to looking back at season two through the lens of these 10 elite climbers that we had as guests on the show, many of whom you've climbed with and are friends of yours, so this should be a pretty good time. But before we do that, I, I wanted to check in kind of specifically on this training element for you. So I think uh, most listeners will know you not only as Tom Randall, fantastic climber, but also as one part of the team who started the Lattice program of training and coaching and uh, of which, of course, I've been using for quite some time now and, and seen fantastic results, as have many of our guests, in fact, looking back to seasons one and season two. And I'm curious what drew you into diving so fully into the science and the development and the application of training. Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, straight off the bat, you just go for the big heavy one. <laughs> okay, so... I think it comes down to it's a blend of personality and my kind of needs in life and what my brain likes and also somewhat just timing and coincidence and how life has turned out. So from the perspective of my brain and what I need is I have a very, uh, let's say, hyperactive brain that wants just want stuff all the time. Like I absolutely love stimulus, problem solving, big picture, pull things apart, work out how they all go together. And training itself is, is something that fits very nicely into that space because all of the parts that go into training and performance, all these moving parts, and then the outputs that you have, are really quite complex and it's very hard to systemize and understand the exact implication of one thing that you might adjust here and how that might affect another thing. So it's always come across to me as being a super appealing thing to get right into and understand all the mechanisms of what are going on and the satisfaction of finding the best way to do it because there is no manual that you can find presently that tells you exactly, you know, it's not like a car engine manual that tells you exactly how climbing training and performance works. And I will say that I've always been similar in other sports that I did before climbing. I've always been very, very interested in that training aspect and element, like the problem solving part of it. So I love that. And it's almost like a lifelong mission. I know that I will never get to the end of my journey. And, and I like that. There isn't an end. 
So it always pushes me to be creative and think in different ways, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other is probably that I went over this kind of threshold of becoming a professional climber and really moving into full-time climbing when I was about maybe 25, 26 years old. And I was based out of Sheffield in a really good climbing gym, doing a lot of route setting, climbing a lot. And then I also met a really well-known sports scientist in the UK climbing scene called Dave Binney, who was a university lecturer. And he just starts to do some of the earlier work in terms of creating these frameworks of how you could train, but much more uh, systemized and a way of taking things from these big mainstream popular sports and taking high quality sports science and applying it into climbing, which is a little behind the times. And I met him at the wall. And I think within half an hour of chatting to him, I was going, oh my goodness, I want the, I want the brain of this guy. I want to know how he does it. What's he doing? What are the questions? And I just got to know him over a couple of years and it just opened up so many doors to me of what to understand. I guess he mentored me in a very um, sort of subtle, light touch way. And eventually I went on to take some of the concepts that he'd developed early on and some of the directions that he pointed me in to think, ah, oh, you know what, I'd like to do this myself with my own training and then with training of others because I like educating others and I like constantly problem solving. So that's, that's how it all happened, really. I like that. That's that's really um, it's interesting to see. It's interesting to, to crack open your noggin a little bit and, and, and understand the motivation for what you do, because you've really built something that I think is, is really powerful and empowering. And is it as fulfilling for you to work on and dial in your own training as it is to help others to work on and dial in their own training and, and performance? Yes, but in very different ways. Hmm. So I think I have a, I have a really big need to help others and see, see a result out of it. Maybe it's partly selfish in the sense that I, I want to be in on the process, but I also want to see the feedback of how they do with things. So it makes me feel good. And then you kind of end up with that positive feedback loop where I'll just constantly want to coach and help people with their climbing and their training. So I kind of want that on one side and I find that very, very satisfying um, and solving it for them. But then for myself, I would say I'm more interested and satisfied by experimentation and going really far down in the weeds to try and find something new and play around with it. Because I quite like risk-taking. I'm not particularly bothered about failing and something not turning up to something. But I don't really want to do it with my athletes or clients particularly. Um, but I find it's a, an important part of the puzzle in with that, that I take those things I've learned from my own climbing and then see how they map out onto others. And probably one of the greatest privileges that I have nowadays with Lattice and being a really large team of coaches who all essentially kind of have this hive mind of everyone being willing to share and uh, discuss and work out what are the common patterns is that you can see how these play out on a thousand people, 5,000 people, 10,000 people, rather than before where I might work with 40 clients across the year. So it's a, it's a different mechanism, but both very, very satisfying. Ah, oh, it's so exciting. You are the perfect person to be diving into this expert analysis on training for us from season two. Of course, it's the Struggle Climbing Show. So before we get into the 10 Elite Climbers, I need to first check in with you as the guy who now has been very scientifically uh, creating and applying various training methodologies. 
where do you struggle personally with your training? Probably two main areas, I would say. One is finding the ability to focus and apply enough of my energy to have a meaningful improvement in that area. As I said earlier on, I am quite hyperactive and I, I like doing lots and lots of things. And that can be a real detriment to the amount of spare energy that I have or the quality of energy that I have to be able to put into something that needs focus in my training. And that's definitely been something that I've struggled with a lot over the years, trying to work out like, really, Tom, what do you genuinely need that is a you know, hard, hard line on this over this next year that you cannot go short on? And that's been something that I've worked on and have got better on, I think, over the years. So that's one side of it. And then the other has been the amount of volume that I enjoy in my climbing and being able to reduce it to allow myself to actually make strength gains. And I'm a route climber, track climber. Uh, I've got a very high endurance capacity. I'm kind of on the weak, weak for the grade end where you'd go, huh, why is that guy not bouldering very hard, but he's still getting up these routes? Uh, I'm that type of climber and obviously like doing a lot. So I found that if I can pull away from that and do a lot less, I make meaningful strength gains, which actually go back into the climbing overall and make your grade go up. It's just not very easy for me because I, I like doing a lot. Yeah, sure. That's that's actually a theme that I saw even come up in, in this season in talking with athletes that there are certain athletes, Tommy Caldwell comes to mind, our first guest of the season, um, that they just really love doing a ton of volume. Obviously, you love doing that as well. But of course, it's all it's all relative. And that's maybe a good place to start uh, this conversation as well, as we're looking at 10 elite athletes and understanding that they are elite, they are very unique, and um, results are not necessarily typical, right? I think one thing that is useful for people to understand listening and I've learned over the years is that you can have three different athletes who all have a very different, let's say genetic makeup, and they can all be doing very high volume work and they like doing this and it, it suits their needs in life. But their response to that in terms of physical adaptation can be very, very different. So some will actually respond extremely well to that high volume work. They, they have a huge capacity. They don't break each easily. They don't pick up a lot of injuries, niggles, etc. And so they excel under that situation. Others will tend to stagnate and actually not go forward, particularly in that situation. They'll kind of reach their own ceiling um, and quite quickly. And then others do very badly under this situation. So I think it's really important for all people to understand that even when they listen to someone like me saying that I do a lot of this and I've done okay by doing a lot of high volume work over the years, their makeup and the difference of them as an individual is going to be an important factor on that. So don't just sort of copy or replace the person that you've just been listening to and think, oh, well, I'll just sit, suit that to myself. It's important to kind of remember that individualized basis. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for highlighting that, especially as we're about to jump in and talk about individuals. But what we're trying to do here on this expert analysis with you is uh, attempt at least to recognize and tease out some common themes, some through lines, whether they're common struggles or certain key learnings that some of these elite athletes have won through through hard earned experience on and off the rock 
So I'm, I'm not asking you to do any easy feat here, but before we dive into some of these case studies, what jumped out to you in looking back at season two here, these 10 elite climbers? Were there any common themes that you saw through the lens of training uh, that, that kind of popped up again and again with some of these athletes? Yeah, I think the one that for me stood out the most and also replicates or mirrors what I have learned about myself and all the people I've worked with over the years is resting and not climbing quite as much, whether it's overall or just in parts of the week or the year, is an incredibly powerful tool that I think probably the majority, if not you know, 90% of climbers, are not truly understanding and respecting. Um, and I think that's for a, re a number of reasons that we love the sport or we just like to keep going or we've already decided in our mind that we're going to go climbing on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and both days of the weekend. That's just how our life is set up right. and we refuse to do anything else. But you have got to remember when it comes down to it is that for any of us that are wanting to improve in our climbing, then we're essentially saying that if I want to improve season upon season, I'm going to be spending a significant part of my year in a zone of what you might class as discomfort, overload, pushing your body to adapt. And if you're going to be doing that and spending a lot of time in there, you need to mirror it with a quality amount of recovery time to allow you to make those changes and adapt. And some of those th changes take longer than others to do. And you just see it every time you look at an athlete and they say, oh, I actually ended up doing a little bit less in my 30s than I did in my 20s. And I made just as many gains. I couldn't believe it. That was quite surprising. Or someone hmm. says, oh, I'm used to climbing seven days a week. But when I started training, I found that I had to drop down to four days a week. That was unusual, but I seem to do really well off it. That's completely common to what I've seen over the years. Um, and you can guess what goes wrong when you don't respect that. Yeah, I love that you're focusing on rest as this first theme in training because it almost would seem counter to a lot of us climbers when we think about training, we think about pulling hard on our fingers, we think about doing, you know, really long days, training endurance and four by fours and this kind of thing. And yet here you are highlighting the importance of rest. And of course, as a theme that came up a lot this season, and it's interesting that you touched on perspective there. Um, gaining this perspective with age and maybe recognizing that rest is a little bit of a, a superpower. And so that brings up uh, Tommy Caldwell, and who, who admits himself that he's a bit of a, a glutton for punishment. He loves that endurance. He loves to push himself, but he also recognizes the power of rest, or at least that he's not performing at 100% if he's climbing or training too much. Let's take a listen to what he had to say on it. I think for most of my climbing life, I, I knew that I was climbing enough that I was always only climbing at like 90% my ultimate ability. And then when it really would matter, then I would rest and it would make me feel amazing. Yeah, so Tommy there kind of using rest almost as a, as a surgical performance enhancer when he really needed to get that extra 10%. And so I'd love your perspective, Tom, on whether it's elite athletes or weekend warriors like myself this this balance between training and pushing ourselves hard uh, where we might not be fully fully recovered and then um, when to really dial in that rest to try to hit 100 percent. i think the phenomenon of pushing yourself 
quite hard so that you're chronically a little under under recovered i suppose or not peaking to your your maximum ability is a very common thing in any climber who's quite invested and deeply in their performance journey one of the reasons for that being at that kind of 90% level is that it means that you're if you're operating at 90% it still means that you're able to operate at a very high level and you're not down at you know having a 60% day where you just feel completely broken you're you're able to tap into kind of 9 out of 10 efforts still and i would say that's a sign of someone or or anyone who is managing to tread that fine line between i suppose overreaching and overtraining and what i mean by overreaching or the simplest term for people to understand is that overreaching i think of as being pushing yourself on a very short scale a little harder than your body has time or ability to recover from but consistently and continually you're allowing yourself these intermittent recovery periods whether it's you know your deload week or it's a three-day set of days off to then recover, to then get back quite quickly into an overreaching phase. And you tend to just slowly creep forward as an athlete and get better and better from season to season in this manner. Whereas overtraining tends to be where people do that overreaching cycle, but then they don't allow themselves to have a deload week or a three-day rest block. And then they slowly dig themselves a hole where they're just getting very slowly, worse and worse and worse. And when people tend to extend that out to three or four months, maybe even further, is that the ability to be able to dig out that hole is excessively larger than you think it should be. So no longer can you dig yourself a big hole for overtraining for four months and go, ah, I'll take a week, two weeks off complete. I'm really, really broken. My coach has told me this or my friends have told me that I'm just done way too much. Two weeks off, I'm good. No, that's not the case. In these cases, it can be a month. It can be two months sometimes if you really dig yourself a big hole. So I think that's an important factor to recognize in that. And then the other is that you get this phenomenon when you do training and you're asking your body to be in peak performance is that effectively you have to push the body a little too far. So you will be overreaching and you'll be adapting and you'll be operating at this kind of eight out of 10, 9 out of 10 capacity. But when you pull back the volume or the or the loading of your training is that this kind of acts like a tapering cycle in performance where you're then able to reach your true potential, you're fully rested, you're fully prepared for maximum levels. But in terms of the signaling that you're giving your body, you're actually in a zone which would allow you to detrain. So these windows where you totally go off the gas and allow yourself to get to 10 out of 10 are actually also a signal or environment under which the body will quite quickly detrain and lose its maximum potential. So it's this really interesting two sides of the coin of how do you play it, how long do you want your peak for, and how you progress as a climber. If, if that Hopefully that explains the concept. Well, yeah, it seems like there's definitely quite a bit of fine-tuning where it, one really needs to understand their own body and how they react to overreaching, to the training load, and then, of course, to, to rest as well. And and this uh, brings to mind something that I spoke with Maiza Lima about with regard to how she programs rest and load. Let's take a listen to her. If I'm feeling so tired, if I didn't get enough sleep, what really is the point? I'm probably just going to go to the gym 
or climb and injure myself. So it's not worth it at the end of the day. Yeah, it's all about listening to your body. More is not always more. So for elite athletes, it seems like it makes sense where you can really get to the point where you understand your body, or maybe some don't. And, and we need to be told, in fact, how to program rest, at least as a general rule. Maiza there talking about how she can feel that she might be pushing herself too far and, and might risk injury. But some of us can get to the point where we're just digging too deep of a hole. So I'm curious if there's a general rule of thumb with regard to programming rest. So I think there are some rules of thumb. Um, and there's, there's really two parts of the equation, I think. One is to try and always respect a degree of intuition in any athlete. But it's to a degree because I will say some athletes are very intuitively correct about their assumptions of rest. Others are intuitively wrong. Right. So you can learn that about either yourself or your athlete that you're working with. So that's that's one part. Intuition is always got a, a high value in this situation. And then the second is by planning in rest, it enables you to create discipline, habit, and structure into essentially respecting the basic rules of training and the basic physiology of what's going on if you are indeed putting in hard work in terms of these training cycles. And I would say most climbers out there will do very well on what we would call a three to one work rest ratio. So this is three weeks of loaded climbing work. So hard, hard climbing for three weeks and then one week of deload. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about the kind of structure of those two. So that's for the majority that I would say they would operate quite well on that. Another scenario where we might change that up or two more co very common scenarios is when someone's first starting to train and they've never done structured training before, especially if they haven't done it in another sport, we may well suggest doing a two to one work rest ratio. So two weeks of work, one week of deload afterwards. And the same again for our slightly older athletes, that tends to kick in around 45 or so onwards, um, especially 50, especially in the 60s, and up that even more if you add in a lot of work stress or life stress. And then that, I think that's very important to add in there. The other scenario that you may well use for some very elite athletes is working on a five to two work rest ratio. So a much longer mesocycle, but a more extensive deload cycle over two weeks. But again, it depends on the athlete and how long you've worked with them for. The bit that I would like everyone to grasp when I talk about work weeks and rest weeks is that work weeks do not all have to be the same. Week one, two, and three don't need to look the same. You can slowly load and ramp things up through those three weeks. That's a perfectly adequate and sensible and intelligent thing to do with that work um, cycle. And then on the deload, we're not talking total rest. You don't just sit on the couch for a week and do nothing or do some stretching all week long. Deload will typically be classed as something around 40 to 60% reduction in load or volume across that week. Most of the stuff that we do with athletes at Lattice is reduce more heavily on the volume aspect of their training rather than the intensity aspects of the training. And the reason why we do that is that we've learned with climbers over the years is that if you drop off too much intensity work, they tend to have a really poor onboarding of the next part of the mesocycle. They they come out there deload. We can go, oh, I feel really rubbish. 
I'm not pulling hard. I just don't feel like I've got anything in my fingers. I'm going to take a whole week to get back into it now. So we maintain the high quality work, but just really short and intensive during that deload week. So that's the sort of rough guidelines, how you do that. Yeah. And that really mirrors my programming from uh, my coach, Roslyn at, at Lattice is three weeks on, one week off, um, not fully off, of course, the deload week, um, we're cutting most of the volume in half. So if I'm doing six sets of max hangs, typically during a, a work week, I would do three sets of max hangs in the deload week. And that's that's worked really well for me. Um, I'm just a couple of years shy of that uh, 45-year-old mark that you mentioned there. So maybe at some point I'll, I'll move to the two weeks on, one week off cycle there. And I think that gets back to a little bit of that intuition and just understanding our body and in our training age. And kind of along those lines, Tom, I'm, I'm curious if there's a similar rule of thumb with regard to rest prior to a performance attempt. So if I'm in the middle of a, a full training week, I'm not on a deload week, and I'm also trying to red point my project. So a weather window comes up and Saturday looks good and I'm going to go out there and put in some max effort attempts. How much time do you recommend I take off prior to that Saturday? Um, so this one is really interestingly and somewhat annoyingly individualized. Mm. And I, I totally understand this about myself as well. Um, and I've always wanted more of a rule to be able to follow with this over the years. And, and climbers or humans are not <laughs> sticking to a system with this getting the taper thing just right. And honestly, I don't actually quite know why it is other than our method has always been at work to go with something which you would typically find in your, your academic papers. So there's uh, like, if anyone wants to kind of read up about taper cycles and deloads and things like that, there's a, um, uh, a author called Mujika, M-U-J-I-K-A, who you can reference quite a few sort of reasonably easy to read papers on this and you'll typically look at around a 40 to 60 percent uh, deload going into your taper periods for performance and that forms the the backbone for where you run some number of test cycles to work out how you bring about best performance and if i was to give you some rough rules of thumb i generally find that climbers who are good at their volume work, they have a high capacity for a lot of endurance training, then those climbers, you can reduce less of the volume in their taper than you might think they, they need to, uh, to be able to perform at peak. And those who uh, really struggle with the high volume work, you need to be overly sensitive about reducing that volume work out of their taper to bring on um, their peak cycles. But it's very much a learning process of just trying lots and lots of different things. Like, do you, have you ever tried anything around uh, post-activation potentiation for preparing for a, a really hard route or boulder problem? You're going to have to dumb those words down for me, Tom. Okay, so uh, post-activation potentiation, um, you might see it references PAP, um, training or, or preparation, is a way of preparing the muscles in the body that you're going to be using in activity in a very, very high intensity quality manner to enable them to reach their true potential within a time period. I think it's around six to 12 minutes 
after that activity. So you can do it for sprinting. You can do, I think it's very heavy squats and hamstring curls. Um, for climbers, you can do very, very heavy pull-ups and um, clustered high-intensity dead hangs, um, which are very, very short duration. Um, and the pull-ups can act as a high-intensity pyramid before, before going and doing a route. And, and this is immediately before, like 10 minutes before you're saying? Yeah, yeah, 10 minutes yeah, before you go on to, to perform your limit route, you're talking about doing max hangs and, and weighted pull-ups? Yeah, Whoa. exactly. And when I first learned about it, I went, no, absolutely not. I'm not doing that. That's just madness. Why would I do that? And then I started playing around with it and I thought, oh, that is absolutely superb gains. And I've used it for a number of years now, especially with route climbing outside. Bouldering, I don't find that it's worked quite as well. Maybe because on the route, I tend to underperform, under prepare for the intensity element of it. Um, so then I get into a crux and I'm not doing so well. So this method really works well for it. Um, but I've used it for lots of clients over the years um, and they've also had very good results. It tends to work best for those who are your uh, weaker for the grade end of the spectrum, almost for like turning on the muscle turning on that kind of recruitment power element. This is super cool. I love this. I love that we're talking about this right now uh, because I feel like you're also talking straight to me since I am on the far left of the bell curve of finger strength to, I guess, climbing grade. Um, and that's what all of my tests at Lattice, for example, have come come out. But also just in my climbing, I just climbed 12D sport and I can um, very often get shut down on V4 boulders. So this sounds like something that could really work for me as well as I imagine many listeners. And it is a little counterintuitive to talk about doing max pull-ups or max finger hangs literally just minutes before pulling on to that red point attempt. Uh, but of course, got to trust the science and and that activation, that, that recruitment activation does make sense to me. Um, so what does that look like? Are, are we literally just, you know, doing some max hangs? at the crag or can we do some like isometric pulls you know i've got the little lattice mini bar people have the flashboard that kind of thing that they bring out to the crag you just wrap it around your feet and just pull really hard um, and then similar for pull-ups what are you doing how can you break that down for us yeah so um for the the finger strength sort of dead hang element of it i um do uh, essentially sort of a, a ramped protocol so I will do two hangs, or if you've got it on a sling and you're pulling up from the ground on your fingers, or you're fixing it to a bolt at the base of the crag, perhaps, or a tree, is I'll do two at around 60% effort, two at 70, two at 80, two at 90, and two at 100. And those um, pulls will be two seconds, three seconds, perhaps. And I'll take my full three minutes rest between each of them. So I'm never feeling in any way not recovered. Um, and I'm increasingly ramping up the quality of it so that those six to 12 minutes before I go on the route, I've actually pulled really, really hard, almost like I've just gone and done a four move, three move maximal boulder problem right at my limit. And then for the pull-up work, again, it's a ramped protocol. So you'll do a two rep max, uh, or not two rep max, rather um, a two rep pull-up 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, or 95, depending on, depends how well conditioned you are. Um, you will find that some climbers, if they get to that point where they're just, you know, shaking their way through things, their whole body's quivering, 
um, is a little bit too much and then they feel like they're just off the pace then afterwards if they're just not used to very, very high intensity maximal work. And then uh, just understand that you only get a certain window under which this uh, is most active. Uh, and it's around, I think it's around six to 12 minutes um, on that window. And, and then you go for it. Yeah, that's really cool. So, so you're essentially, you're starting the route with a little bit of a pump on, or I don't know, maybe pump isn't the right word, but you're you're doing these max pulls with a little rest in between each, like you said, maybe three minutes between each set. Um, but you're going into it warm, and that's definitely not something that I've tried, nor had I heard of it. And it sounds like this PAP is um, fairly common. So my apologies to listeners if this is super redundant, but I'm learning a lot from that. I'm definitely going to give it a shot. And, and you know, Tom, that actually kind of brings up a, um, a way for us to continue to explore our, our season two athletes here. And, you know, my example here where I just, I just didn't know that this existed. Now I'm going to try it. Maybe it'll help me. The science suggests that it will. And at least a, a mini theme that I recognized from this season was um, certain climbers not understanding very well or maybe having a complete absence of understanding on how to train like full stop, all of their training came from climbing. And that speaks a little bit to how um, nascent the sport is in a sense, and also how much low-hanging fruit there is for elite athletes out there if they haven't been training. Um, but also it speaks to kind of the mysteries around training and that it, it can be a little bit of an information overload or it can just be uh, confusing when one starts to um, focus on training. And I think a lot of listeners, a lot of amateur climbers and weekend warriors uh, experience that as well, whether they're beginners or have been climbing for many, many years. And so Peter Croft and Mary Eden both come to mind here. And so I'd like to um, hear something that Mary had to say and then get your thoughts. I didn't know how to train at all. I didn't know how to use gym equipment because um, I was never like a member of a gym. There's no rock climbing gym in Moab. So when I started training, like I, I felt really embarrassed being in front of people trying to like follow, you know, the lattice training worksheets. And I was just like, but I don't know what that kind of exercise actually is. And so I would have to Google how to do the exercise or what it was. Yeah, I feel like that was like my biggest struggle was even knowing how to exercise at all. So, of course, this is you have direct firsthand experience with this exact scenario because it sounds like you were the one that helped to introduce Mary to the concept or at least to the specifics of training and, and get her going on a plan. And I wonder, because she's an absolute crusher, how common is this? How common is it for you to cross paths with high performing athletes um, or, you know, weekend warriors who are just... Uh, overwhelmed or have no idea where to start with regard to training? And then what advice do you give for those folks that are just looking to start something? I think it's about one is knowing that just like all other parts of your climbing journey, it's totally cool to not be that good at something and not really know what you're doing. You didn't expect to go into a climbing wall for the first time ever in your life and immediately know how to belay and tie-in and everything like that, you just knew that people would show you or you'd be able to go on a course for it or you'd ask someone that looked like they did know what they were doing and then you'd work out whether you trusted them or not. And so I think that's that's one part of it is to know that it's okay to not know what you're doing, even if you're already 
a pretty decent climber and climbing at quite a good grade and you're just thinking about the training part of it. And then secondly is to know that even if there may be a bit of a culture still in, and I think it's stronger in some places than others, it's a bit macho, can seem a little unwelcoming to people that aren't really good at training, are always people in these environments who are incredibly kind and psyched and willing to help you out, even if it means that initially you have to go online for the experience and you've just got to go into a Facebook forum or you get involved with some chat on some Instagram posts about training and you just find like-minded people that seem cool and they communicate with you in a really supportive way. And before you'll know it, you will realize that you've kind of crossed the threshold of the first few months where it felt a bit hard and you didn't know what you're doing to now you're thinking, oh, I know exactly what a dead hand looks like. I know what good form is. I more or less know what all these training tools are. And I've watched a few videos on it and, and you will get there. And I think it's completely normal amongst all climbers to not have a correlation of how good you are at training or let's say in air quotes, how good you are at training versus how good you are at climbing, because I see it right up to the top end. I mean, Adam Andre, he was over here in the UK, I don't remember my time, I mean, 10 days ago or so that me and Pete were climbing with him. And bless him, I hope you're not listening too much to this, Adam. His knowledge on training was not 9A, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> he knows his training pretty well, but I wouldn't say his training knowledge is 9A. And there were a couple of things which I thought, no, I definitely don't agree with that. Um, and I don't think you're you're right on that, which is really fascinating for me. It's not to say like I'm you know, dissing on Adam, but more that I think it was very interesting for me as a coach to remind myself that we've got one of the world's very best climbers, but he has very definite holes in his training knowledge, which is totally okay because he is obsessed and very, very good at being a really good climber. He's not trying to be a 9C training coach or training guru. That's not his thing. He has good people around him who trust to help him out on that. And so everyone else should likewise know that they can do the same thing, whether he's going to a professional coach who's going to do that or just being down the wall and finding a psyched person who wants to help you out and wants to share knowledge. There's thousands of them out there. Yeah, I, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I think um, it's relatable for, for us average climbers to hear that somebody as dialed as, as Adam uh, and a lot of the athletes on this season of the struggle, in fact, not only maybe have gaps, but admitted to being absolutely clueless when it came to programming training. But why would we need to be an expert in training when we could reach out to an expert in training? We got other things that we need to worry about in our regular lives, whether it's kids and jobs or if you're a professional climber, technique or planning your trips or whatever you know the case may be. One doesn't necessarily need to be an expert in everything, but that that does bring up what Mary had to say once she did start training. And let's take a listen to that. Once I followed it, my grade went up exponentially. It was crazy. I just started putting down 12 trad routes. Like it wasn't that big of a deal. It sounds like there was some low hanging fruit there and she saw an immediate jump. So maybe first you could speak to what you think the opportunity is for climbers who, who haven't been putting a lot of focus on training. Maybe again, just going to the gym a few days a week and messing around with friends and climbing as opposed to having a focused kind of training plan and schedule over the course of a week or a few months. Yeah. So I think with a lot of climbers and this, this includes Mary as well, is that they've often been very good over their formative years or 
at training and conditioning the parts of the body which are the limiting factors in their climbing. So that will typically be the, the forearm muscles. You know, it goes without saying that strength of forearm flexors has a, a very strong correlation with how well you'll climb. It's not the only factor by any means, but it's, it's a very strong one. And so you will see them well conditioned in this area. And we've learned over the years that if you do a lot of more heavy conditioning of the forearm on top of that, so stuff like your fingerboarding or campusing, then we see this next level up of performance. So it's almost like that concept of over-preparing the soft tissues and the muscles for the demands of what you're going to do sees really, really good results. But with cases like Mary's and then other climbers, whether they're just, you know, keen weekend warriors or other professional climbers who haven't done a great deal of climbing is that through the, the form or the practice of climbing, we very rarely stress and push our larger muscle groups. So things around the shoulder girdle, core, legs, hips, back, lower back, etc., beyond the capacity or, or anywhere close to their actual capacity of those muscle groups when it comes to climbing. And I think what this ends up happening is that we end up after 10 years of climbing and we've got to a reasonably decent grade of having very well conditioned forearms, but really relatively poorly conditioned other parts of the body, which are actually involved with climbing movement. And what I've seen over the years of training lots of people is that if you can take a bit of a broader approach and almost over-prepare all muscle groups specific to performance in climbing to this capacity, which is above what they'll actually need to do when they go rock climbing, you end up with really, really good athletes and ones that tend to be a lot more robust, resilient, they perform better, they don't get injured as much. And that is where, in a way, the sort of low-hanging fruit is in terms of a concept. Um, and that's the one where I get quite excited if I can get a professional climber who has got to an already good level, but has only really trained one part of their body to a high degree. And I'm thinking, oh man, this is gonna be amazing. If we can just put two to three years in here with strength and conditioning of the upper back and shoulders, for example, then you know the potential is two, three plus grades on top of what you have. And we won't have to touch your finger strength. So that's a that's a really common um, factor that you'll see across climbers. And I think it's particularly in our female athletes as well. I love that. How exciting for, for anybody who's listening to know that, that there's so much potential out there and a little surprising to me as well, Tom, because the mind immediately goes to like finger training for whatever reason. I don't know. Maybe that's just because like, it's just such a hot topic in, in climbing, but how about that general conditioning to to really help us level up. It's really interesting. You did a, a fantastic interview recently with Hazel Finley talking about her work on Escalada Masters, the 9A that she climbed. And of course, she worked with y'all over at Lattice. And she's one that's quick to say that she gets by on technique far more so than than maybe specifically strength and working through a very focused training plan including training knee bars, it sounded like, you know, really working maybe muscles that she had never worked on before. She didn't even, as she said in your, her chat with you, that she didn't know how to knee bar. She never used a knee pad. So yeah, there, there was some low-hanging fruit there and uh, training those specific, maybe non-climbing muscles, but muscles that will help us to be better climbers makes a ton of sense. But I wonder, Tom, kind of on the other side of that coin, if the pendulum can swing too far and we're maybe spending too much time 
in a gym. And, and that brings to mind here a quote from Jonathan Segrist, where he was taking a look at training versus climbing as his training. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Like I can come out of the gym feeling piping strong, but then I go on to rock. If I, you know, if I haven't touched rock for a few months, I'll come on to rock and it'll be like, I'll feel like there's something totally missing. Like, like I've missed a piece of the puzzle and then it's some weeks before I, it all like clicks. And I think that that's totally normal for most people. But what I've noticed is that I can integrate a lot more climbing into my training and that could be on a board, but then, I mean, I like, I really like outside climbing as part of my actual training. And the more I integrate, the better I feel when I go on that trip. Yeah, so, so for climbers like uh, Jonathan, I think probably from what I understand, Chris Sharma is probably very similar, climbs a lot outside all year long. Um, a few very capable Spanish sport climbers that I know, I don't think they barely ever climb in the gym and they do this all year long, is this topic or concept always comes down to practicalities. So I am of the view that the majority of the climbers in the world, if they could find a way to structure their outdoor climbing so they could have a nice balance of endurance work, power endurance work, bouldering work on the rock outside all year long, and they could structure it right, they could achieve a very, very high level. But for the vast majority of people, this isn't practical because of the amount of time that you would have to be out on rock and traveling to crags. And you quickly end up in a scenario where you'd basically have to be a professional or a semi-professional climber with 20 to 40 hours outside at the crag a week, which is great if you have that life set up. But for lots of other people, they just don't. So there's this slight mismatch here where you have the concept that you can totally do this but if you're a climber who has two half days at the weekend outside a week but then the rest of the time is just a couple of one hour two hour sessions in the gym you can't achieve that same amount of time out on rock getting the movement right getting the feel on the rock getting your head into a good place getting really familiar with the technique you use on rock so you have to find a blend of structured prepared training which isn't specific to rock and then match it in with your climbing and i guess what i'm saying is that there's a spectrum of approach with this and at the far far end where you spend 100 percent of your time on rock all year long you're going to be moving very 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 well very familiar with rock really good technique really confident and achieving a very high level you probably will have the downside that in terms of strength and conditioning of the other parts of the body, then you're potentially going to have a little bit of a hole there. Depends on your approach and, and what balance and split of styles of climbing you do, whether it's a load of slab, a rare, steep, big move pockets, you know, all, all this sort of stuff. Um, and then the other end of the spectrum, you have climbers who will only go out once a month and they spend all the rest of their time hanging out on a fingerboard which again is really bad or not really bad, but has significant problems because they lack so much ability to be able to move well on rock, read the rock, develop and refine their technique all the time, have a good mindset for being outside in the outdoor environment and pushing themselves that they're going to find difficulties. And the majority of the people listening and even pro or semi-pro athletes, they kind of sit somewhere in the middle 
And really, you've got to think about the demands of your sport. Where are you personally in terms of how much do you need to work on the physical aspect of your climbing? How much do you need to work on the mental aspect or the technical aspect? And finding what you need for your goals this season. And it should, on the whole, go in a direction that as you get closer to the thing that you want to do, make it more and more specific. And if I was to give anyone guidance listening is on the whole, go more specific than you think, because I think the general population defer towards the side of not specific enough. And that's why in like a really basic example for all of you out there uh, listening is that you'll see people do very well when they include replica training into their base season before they go out and do a project because there's a very good um, transfer across that because it's, it's highly specific. I appreciate that. Um, that That's such a helpful perspective to have. And and I've certainly really benefited specifically from from replica training myself. But that, that can only come from getting on a route enough where you really know how to set a replica and you know how to train the specific things that you need. So you have to put in the time. Hazel talked a lot about that as well with Escalada Masters, putting in enough time on the route where she could then come back and confidently know exactly what she needed to specifically work on. I, I wonder where board training comes into this. You know, Jonathan Seagrass mentioned that he'll prefer to climb outside, but he'll also train on a board because you're still getting some, uh, of course, some technique, some climbing movement there. And this reminds me also of a conversation that we had with Mo Beck earlier this season. Because she only has one hand to climb on, she really disliked working out on a, a fingerboard, on a hangboard. And then she discovered the kilter board, and I think the, the holds were very comfortable for her, so she started training power on that. Let's, let's hear what she had to say here. Kilter boards especially um, have really changed my game, you know. In the last, I've been kiltering for like maybe two years now, and I feel like I'm making up for a lot of those misses from earlier in my training where I wasn't campusing and I wasn't hangboarding. All of a sudden, I'm like able to do that, that power and that finger strength through boards. Yeah, so the training boards, they're definitely um, very popular, um, gaining a ton of popularity. It used to just be the moon board, and now there are so many different systems boards out there. And I just recently did an interview with Ravioli Biceps on the moon board specifically, which was awesome. And and I've been trying that more myself. Totally shuts me down. But um, I think it has been really good for my training. And I can see, like with what Mo's saying there, where if you either um, can't or just really dislike training your fingers through max hangs or maybe campus rungs, working out on a board maybe could provide a similar level of stimulus and also work in some technique, right? Work in some full body uh, power. So I'm curious where your head's at as a coach when it comes to programming work on those kinds of boards versus set problems versus just kind of bearing down and doing the hangboard and that kind of thing. Uh, I've definitely got a, yes, a strong opinion on this one uh, in terms of how to use things like system boards or bouldering walls that you might have uh, locally to you and and the best benefit to have from it is really the equation here that you've got to take into account is what does my climbing look like in terms of my goal and my aims? So what does the rock type look like? What does the angle of terrain look like? What do the hold sizes and shapes look like? And how do I mimic or try and create some transfer of that across from my training periods? And the more that you can create a tighter match 
with what you're aiming to do, the better the transfer will be on that. And this, and the caveat on this is, as long as that when you're doing the training, you're training something which is your effective low-hanging fruit for the season. So what I mean by that is, let's say you want to climb, you're going to Magic Wood and you're going to climb on 45, no, let's make it simpler, 40 degree, little single joint crimping edges, um, and that's your project. Let's go to the moon board, 40 degree crimping edges on the moon board. If your limited limiting factor of getting up those projects in Magic Wood is not a degree of finger strength and contact strength on those holds, and it's something completely different, your time is possibly wasted on training on that moon board in preparation for your trip. You might just use that as refinement of your skills and technique and movement before you go away if you can't get access to granite or 40 degree walls outside. So that's like a refinement polishing the diamond part of the equation. But if your element that's lacking in terms of sending those projects in magic wood on that 40 degree granite train is something else, you've got to be training that other thing. So this is the bit that can be misunderstood by people is that they go, oh, well, my kilter board or my moon board is really great because I'm moving this way and it replicates what I'm doing. But if there's not a, a transfer across and it's not the limiting part of your performance, then you're kind of just putting meaningless work in and you're just churning, you're sort of like spinning the, spinning the hamster wheel uh, as such. Um, so it's why I would always encourage all climbers to try and be quite intelligent about thinking about every six-month block that you have is going, okay, look at the specific elements of my goals and my aims, break them down, think what about what they look like. How can I address that in my training? How can I do this similar sort of stuff in my training? And then question it always at the end and go, and is this some degree of low-hanging fruit or something that I can actually work, work on meaningfully this season and make changes on and it will work on my project. If it's not, go back to the drawing board, go and ask a friend, ask a coach, get a different opinion. Yeah, I love that. I love this because, you know, one would just think that uh, typically if you're going to go on a trip and you know you're going to be climbing that angle, you should be training on that angle and 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 you you should, right? Like you said, you're polishing the diamond to some extent, but if your weakness isn't that, you need to identify your weakness and then work on that. And it's it doesn't take a ton of work, but it does take some introspection or maybe asking your friends where, where they think your weaknesses are so you can focus on that. Yeah. The other concept around kind of working on weaknesses in each training season is that I've been a, always been a big proponent of not picking more than two things per season to work on. Even if you're someone that looks at where you're at and you go, oh man, I've got seven things here, which are all kind of limiting factors for this goal that I want to go for in a year's time. And they are problems. Don't go for all seven. Just pick two and knuckle down and work on those two. I promise you, because I've done this myself, if you just do two a season and you do that for five, 10 years in a row and you really nail it, you will have better improvements than you can possibly imagine just by being focused and making something work in one or two things. It's great. It's fantastic. Yeah, that go deep instead of wide um, philosophy, I think is is really great. It's For my personality type, it's very hard because I want to try to fix everything and do everything all at once. But I, I, I the rewards, both both the um, external reward of being able to climb better, but also I think that it's, it's very fulfilling personally to be able to identify something 
and then like just blast it out of the water over the course of a year and then make that weakness your strength. Mary Eden talked a lot about that in wanting to become really proficient at climbing every size. She didn't want a bad size, as she said. She wanted to climb a grade in every in every size, essentially, and, and didn't want there to be a weakness. But this brings up something that's been on my mind and try to I'll try to kind of um, try to tee it up, but hopefully you'll be able to run with it. But essentially, I've been wondering for myself at what point it makes sense to train weaknesses and at what point it makes sense to train strengths. And I'm thinking specifically about my lattice assessment identified that my weakness, you know, hands down was finger strength. For the grade that I climbed, the the amount, the percentage of my body weight that I could hang was very much on the low end. We talked about this when I joined you on the, the lattice podcast. It was like very low. I mean, 115% or something like that. And I, I believe the gold standard, or at least the benchmark that I was I'm <laughs> trying to attain is 150%. I had 150% on my weighted pull-ups, my endurance, my power endurance test, um, I think was was very, very strong. And that reflects the type of climbing that I do at the Red River Gorge, which is these longer kind of overhung, not particularly bad holds. You know, many of them jug hauls for 120 feet, but very weak on overall finger strength. So a lot of my training is focused on that. It's a lot of kind of max hangs. It's a lot of work on the moon board. It's not a lot of power endurance or endurance. There's some, that's that's worked in there. I, th- I would say it's a it's a balanced training program, but the emphasis is definitely on finger strength. And I'm wondering for me, like if I'm looking at my goals for this upcoming season and, you know, the the 513s that I'm looking at, likely I'm going to achieve that on routes that are speak to my style. So they're going to be the longer, pumpier, maybe nothing harder than a V5 on the entire thing or a V4 but they just kind of go on forever. And so I understand the benefits of training up finger power because it's really weak for me. But at what point should I, using me as an example, but maybe you can speak generally here, look at my goals and say, well, I should really zero in on leveling up my power endurance. You know, it's good right now. Maybe it's a a bit of a superpower. Um, I don't have any superpowers, but it's like maybe the thing that I'm strongest at. I surely could make it stronger but I haven't been putting a lot of emphasis on it because it's not maybe a weakness in my assessment. Does that make sense? I know I'm rambling here, but I'm trying to figure out like when it, when it makes sense to train weaknesses, when it makes chen- sense to train strengths. I probably could have just said it in one 10 word sentence. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Um, it's a constant dilemma amongst probably all climbers because people are generally aware of that they have a number of things which they're they struggle with and aren't as easy for them but then they have other things so they go oh this always comes easy to me and i do it for four weeks or so and then i feel like i'm back on top form again or i just whenever i train i just seem to go forward quite quickly and i would tend to for the most part try and get people to put it in a box in their head that on one side of things you have your weaknesses which season to season that you're trying to train and then your strengths you're trying to polish or exploit. Um, and that effectively you can do both as long as you periodize the strategy and the approach that you have to those two parts of the equations. So in the broadest sense, most people will do very well if they work on improving your weaknesses, so that's those one or two weaknesses in your training season. And training seasons or preparation seasons typically take up 
two thirds of the time, let's say for the sort of simplest arguments, like the bigger chunk of time, and you're strategizing your training around working those weaknesses, but you can keep turning that treadmill or that hamster wheel on your strengths and you can just keep in touch them, keep them, you know, up at that kind of ticking over at quite a nice level behind things. And those can be strengths which are physical, technical, mental, whatever they might be. And then when you come round to your preparation, oh, sorry, your peak season and you're wanting to try your projects is you start to really come off the, the gas in terms of how much you're pushing your body to constantly adapt in terms of the weaknesses. And now you're going to turn into refining both what you've developed in your weaknesses, but now also refining your superpowers to bring them all together so that you can then have the best possible chances on your route. Um, and for the majority of people, I think that's a good approach. Other option that you can take is to say, look, I don't quite understand where my ceiling is right now in terms of my superpowers. And actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to go on a mission for, I would say you probably learn it within two to three years and you could completely go down a full rabbit hole of long end power endurance climbing and find out where does Ryan get to? Like for V4 boulder problems, can you actually climb 13B off that? Or maybe you can climb 13C and then... For V5, can you climb 13C and 13D? Who knows? But you may well need to go down that very exclusive journey rabbit hole for two to three years to find out where that level is. I did that 10, no, maybe not 10 years ago. Yeah, maybe 10 years ago, 10 to 12 years ago, and found out how far I could get with the endurance aspect of my boulder grade. My max boulder grade was V8. I got to 8B plus sport grade. I just couldn't get any more out of it. And I was satisfied with that. I was like, huh, okay, that's that's where Tom exists. That's my genetic potential. That's my experience behind it. That was my training history, which led to that. I'm probably not going to get anything more out of this. So now I was interested in, well, I want to know what V9 feels like, 10, 11, 12, et cetera. So I went back down that way. Um, and you can either learn it yourself and invest two or three years going way down that way or you could take the experience and the opinion of really trusted friends or a coach or even an assessment and going and looking at some data and looking at some data models. All of those are perfectly valid approaches. It just depends on which one feels right to you and feels motivating because I could never say which is the right one. You have to feel what's in your heart is the right thing and what you're motivated to do. Just talking about this has got me so psyched to go down a rabbit hole on power endurance. I might have to talk to Roz and see like, to, I mean, I don't, I, I want to be a well-rounded climber. So I, I think that there's, there's also, you know, one could be a total specialist on a certain type of rock or a certain type of climbing and just really be, you know, very narrow. I want to be able to go out and have fun days on limestone and sandstone and granite and slab and crack and all that. Like I, I climb for fun. I climb for joy. There's no big paycheck at the end of uh, Ascend on anything that I'm doing here, but I'm so psyched on figuring out like where are my limits with regard to power endurance that I might push her to see if we can work a little bit more of that into my base weeks here. So I appreciate that, Tom. That's great. Is there anything looking back that amateur climbers, weekend warriors, everyday listeners here at the Struggle Climbing Show that we struggle with that the pros just don't? The pros have figured it out. Is there, you know, a bit of insight that you would give through the lens of training to listeners that the pros just didn't touch on for whatever reason? 
so from the, the the professional climber perspective, I don't think they always, and this comes with the greatest love for some of my professional climbing friends who work, not work, God, I'm not going to call this work, um, play all year long um, and go climbing all the time, is I don't think they necessarily realize how much full commitment and dedication and simplicity they have to a life of climbing. There are no other things that go into it and they have truly stepped over the threshold and everything is engineered around it. Like I always have this joke with my work colleagues that professional climbers are like the hardest people to organize ever because it's like herding cats. They're, they're really not interested in your thing unless it's involving sending their project or something which is going to serve their sporting need. And yeah, I mean, I, we, they are all quite selfish about that and that's the nature of where it is. But they're very, very committed over on that side and and they don't understand quite how much everyone else is juggling when you're trying to do a 40-hour week a job. You've got two kids, you've got pets, you've got an elderly parent that actually needs checking in on every single weekend. You need to go around and just make sure that they're taking their medication or whatever it might be. That's that's a lot to add on to also trying to do your 5.13, first 5.13, and now you're trying to first do your first 5.14. Freaking hell, that's, that's a lot. And then likewise, I think the general public or keen amateur climbers haven't always been able to have a period in their life where they can get their head around this concept that it may just, it may just be worth the risk of really re- visiting their lifestyle setup and what they're doing to just dip their toe for a year, maybe two years into that fully invested pro, semi-pro lifestyle and and find out what happens. You may just discover that like a style of life that you never knew could be possible or you would imagine is just your bag. And actually you don't mind not earning a hundred grand a year now on your really cool corporate job and you're much happier going traveling and climbing all the time. Um, and it's scary, but I think the stepping over of the threshold in either direction is very much a, a very important defining watershed. And I've stepped both sides of that line and I've lived both those experiences. So I, this comes from the context of knowing I've really struggled with those two sides at different times, but I know that they look insanely different and it's very hard to explain to each party how different they can feel until you, you go out there and take a risk and experience it. Man, I love it. Hell yeah. Oh my gosh, my wife is going to hate you, Tom. <laughs> I'm like, I'm ready to throw in the towel and uh, I can't do it. I can't do it. But I'll, but I'll continue to train my butt off and get out on the weekends and... Uh, and give it hell on the rock. I just really want to underscore what you just said. I think it's really beautiful. It certainly goes well beyond training for climbing. It goes into fulfillment and joy. And that's what 99.9% .9 of the people listening to this podcast right now are, are climbing for. It's, it's for personal fulfillment and joy and discovering something about ourselves or life or this universe, whatever it is, it's, it's for most of us, it's not about paying the bills. And to discover something about yourself in a, in a bigger way, even through the act of climbing or training and discovering, you know, what it is that brings that joy uh, is such cool advice and, and such a beautiful note 
for us to transition to kind of our last couple minutes of this conversation, Tom, and that's on you and what brings you joy and purpose and passion uh, in life. I think uh, one of the the main driving forces for me and, and has always been this way is that I absolutely love learning and it often looks like I'm off always doing different experiences, but really what underpins it is just learning something new about the world or other people or about myself. And I've been obsessed about it literally as long as I can possibly imagine, all the way through my childhood and everything like that. And it comes back to that thing I said earlier on about how it really serves my brain. I love this just constant stimulation. And you will see me in, if you catch me in an environment where I've learned something new, like my eyes are just so wide open and I'm going, oh my goodness, no, I can't believe this. Oh, I never knew this. Why did I not know this? This is amazing. And I get so excited by that. And every day that I can have that goes by where I get to the point where I'm just like falling asleep at night and I think that was just such a wonderful day because I learned these new things about pe people and new concept about our environment, about me, any of those things that just, it's just like what gets me up every day and I find really, really rewarding. And because I think it's so broad across people, the environment around us, um, climbing, I dip into lots of those different things. So I'm really interested in doing business startups and developing teams and products and services. And that's what comes back to my work because I just, underneath it all, get to learn so much. I really like climbing because 25 years after climbing, I'm still learning so much. That trip to Spain that I've just been on climbing slabs, I feel like I'm a completely different climber again. So it's that. That's the stuff that I absolutely love and I see it in others. And it's just, it's so, it's so rewarding. That's fantastic, man. Really beautiful. I, it really is what I think sets the sport apart um, or just makes it so special in the community itself is it's not just sterile feats of strength. There's so much to be learned and discovered and so much problem solving. And of course, the community aspect is is just what makes it so special. Thank you for for sharing that. So for those who want to uh, either connect with you or work with Lattice, how do we follow up in the Tom Randall world? The, the main thing like talking about like Lattice stuff is I think the, the website is probably the, the best port of call because you can just learn lots about what we do, um, which is lattice-training.com, And you can find about all our products and services all the way down to kind of our YouTube channel and education that we do and uh, blogs and things like that. So there's, there's a whole world of stuff um, on that website that you can really dive into. And then um, I always welcome people to just send me DMs on Instagram, whether they have something new that they learn or just reach out to me in a, a general sense. Um, I am a complete sucker for new experiences. So that will always go down very well in my world. And I think probably a lot of climbers are quite often surprised that they send me a message and I have no idea who they are. And they go, oh, I just found out this thing. Um, thought you might want to know. And I'll just reply straight away and go, yeah, that's amazing. Tell me more. And so that's, yeah, that's the way, that's the way to get through to me for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's the challenge to listeners is um, make sure that there's something novel, something interesting, some new learning, and it'll, that is the bait that will hook a response from Mr. Randall here. Well, Tom, I'm just so psyched to talk to you. Every time I talk to you, I think your, your psych is absolutely infectious. And that is echoed by so many of the climbers that I've had as guests here. 
on the show. People love to climb with you. They love to work with you. Uh, they love to play practical jokes on you at the crag. <laughs> and uh, oh yeah, this has been a hell of a joy, man. I'm, I'm really excited to do it again sometime and maybe get out and get some pictures in one of these days. Yeah, we've got to do this. We we, we will meet up. I uh, I we've chatted too many times now to not have to do this. Uh, I will meet you in the desert the next time you're in town here. Um, thanks, man. Just what a pleasure. And likewise. And that wraps up our chat with the delightful and insightful Tom Randall. What'd you all think of this one? Do you have any questions or comments? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at Tom Paul Randall. Don't forget the Paul. And at the Struggle Climbing Show. Now in a second, I'm going to hit you with my big takeaways from this big takeaway on season two through the lens of training. But first, let's give a little love to the brands who are making it all possible here in the podcast slash utility closet. Shout out to Petzl for being the official gear sponsor of The Struggle. If y'all are looking to boost your confidence and comfort in your harness game, they've got an option specifically designed for your style of climbing. Find them at your local gear shop or pop by Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. And if you want to level up your training and performance, check out Fizzy Vantage. Grab some of their new greens powder to start your day off right. It is delicious, it's affordable, and it'll probably replace a number of vitamins or supplements that you're already taking. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off at fizzyvantage.com. Now, my big takeaways here, looking back with Tom on season two through the lens of training specifically, are one, pros struggle with training just like the rest of us. Some of them are even as clueless as we are, and that is awesome. Two, as Tom recognized as a big theme from this season, the power of proper rest cannot be overstated. And three, there's some low-hanging fruit out there for all of us as we dig into optimizing our training. So identify that, pick one or two things at the most to focus on this training cycle and get to work. Also, as Tom pointed out, we don't need to be experts at training. If Adam Andra isn't, then we don't have to either. We can work with friends, coaches, or programs that take the guesswork out of the process. I'm personally a big fan of Lattice, and I have been for years now, so I can attest to their coaches and programs, but there are others out there that I also have tried and love. So if you're as lost as Mary Eden was when she started her training journey, just start somewhere with someone you trust. You got this. The Struggles Carbon Neutral in partnership with the Honnold Foundation, whose mission is to support solar energy for a more equitable world. Guys, pop over to honnoldfoundation.org to learn about the amazing projects they're supporting. And while you're there, check out some of the really beautiful videos that they're creating with their grantees. It is super inspiring stuff. Well, that clips the anchors on this episode. I hope you all appreciated the work that went into grabbing the interview clips from the season and looking back in this scientific way with Tom Randall. If you did, and if you're in a position to support me and the climbers who make these shows possible, pop on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to come aboard as a patron. Thank you. I love you. And lastly, The Struggle's a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. The Struggle makes us stronger. Let's climb hard and do good things in the world. See you next week.